All right, so let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2. We are going to start a new series called One Another, and we'll have a pause in that next week, but then we'll pick it back up for a couple of weeks after. So just to give you an idea of, of what we're doing now. Acts chapter 2, let's look at verse 42. Acts 2, 42 through 47. These are the words of God. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we glorify you now as we open up your word. We ask and pray that your spirit would convict us and bring us to a greater knowledge of you. May our hearts and minds be open to the truth of your holy scripture. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So usually here at Cross and Crown, we like to jump into the deep end and talk about all the taboo issues uh, that most people and churches don't tend to talk about. Uh, things like politics and taxation and government schools and socialism. So after, after this series, Lord willing, uh, we're going to do a series called The Politics of Humanism. And I want to address a lot of those issues. And so hopefully that'll happen if the Lord wills, uh, down in the next few weeks down the road. In the meantime, though, I want to talk about something the Bible talks quite a bit about, and that being Christian community. Christian community, the church of Jesus Christ, the ecclesia of God. This ecclesia is the assembly of the way, we might say. It's the assembly of God's, God's people as they seek to infiltrate the world with the kingdom of God. And that is not just some sort of ethereal concept out in the sky that many people tend to postulate. It's actually incredibly and immensely practical. The ecclesia has a powerful weapon in its koinonia. The church has a powerful weapon in its fellowship. It's partnering together. It's unity together. It's labors and toils together in the world. So the word church comes from, that's the Greek word, ekklesia. That's why I called it the ekklesia and koinonia for this message. And that word itself actually has its origins in the Hebrew word kahal. Um, that, both words basically say who the church is called to be more than what sort of building they're supposed to occupy. Um, so it's absolutely Uh, It includes a congregation in a geographical space like here, um, but it's even broader than that. Uh, It's it's not just about one particular place. 
it's more than a building. It's more than the house of God, what we would say. It's a larger called-out community of God's people. That's the assembly. So all of this, though, is tied to the function of the church, um, namely its work for the kingdom of God. We'll get to Acts 2 in a, in a little bit. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14 says this, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And listen, and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. Those who are with the Lamb are the called and the chosen and the faithful. If you read any of the old-time Reformers and their discussion on the doctrine of the church, this verse will pop up. We are the called, we are the chosen, we are the faithful. That's, that's the assembly, the kahal, the ecclesia of God. Now that simply means that the Bible frames the doctrine of the church in terms of who she's married to, who she serves, right, and, and what she does about all of that. The bride of Christ, who is she married to? King Jesus. So who does she serve? Jesus. We serve after him. We serve what he, he wants us to do in the world. And so what do we do about that relationship now that we've been brought into this wonderful marriage supper of the Lamb? So as Rush Duty has taught, the church is a functional institution. It's not a terminal institution. It's a functional institution. The ecclesia is not the end of the road for the Christian. Um, the church is to be a means through which we exhibit kingdom living in the world for the glory of the king. I'll say that again. The church is to be a means through which we exhibit kingdom living in the world for the glory of the king. So don't, don't, don't miss that. Any discussion on how we are to one another one another... <laughs> We are to one another, one another. That's, that's part of what we do. That's, that's fellowship, right? And we'll talk about ways we do that in, in the coming weeks. But that, there has to be this sort of focus in our ecclesiology. Just the big fancy word we talk about, the, the, the study of the church, the ecclesia, ecclesiology. Now, one more thing needs to be said about this. It's important for us to keep in mind something very, very crucial to this doctrine, the church starts all the way back to Adam and Eve, okay? It doesn't start with Pentecost. It starts with Eden. The church starts all the way back. In Eden, Adam and Eve, they were brought into existence, and that existence was in terms of God's covenant. Adam and Eve were told to serve God and His covenant word. That's what their task was to do. They were given the dominion mandate, right? So their work, their labor was to be on God's terms, in terms of God's law. And so that means that this task that we have before us has an ethical attachment to it, right? There's a way to do it and a way to not do it. So they were not to go about the dominion mandate, this work and keep the garden, expand the garden. They were not to do it in their own autonomous ways. All right, they, they, they were to be holy, they were to be righteous, they were to chase after the knowledge of God and His Word, they were called to obey Him in all aspects of their life. All right, so God, God didn't set Adam and Eve in the garden and say, okay, you're here, now just do your own thing. Do whatever you want. 
There, there, it wasn't sort of like dropping a kid in a, in a Chuck E. Cheese and say, go wild, right? We're, this isn't the playground. <laughs> it's not the way this whole thing works together. Um, they were called not to do their own thing. They were to serve God by working, by keeping God's garden. They were God's vice regents. They were, they were priests and they were kings. They were intermediaries between God and the world. God had given them this planet. They were supposed to do something about it, but they weren't supposed to do it in their own way. Now, you all know the story of Genesis 3 and how that worked itself out. Adam and Eve, they listened to the lie of the serpent. They plunged themselves. They plunged the world into chaos and sin and death. Now, this, this is actually this is an important point. This is the larger picture of the gospel that's typically left out in your average church today. So the gospel doesn't just deal with the transgressions of a man, though that's essential, and without it we have nothing. It deals also with man's sin for failing to obey the dominion mandate. I'll say that again. The gospel isn't just to forgive a man for his transgressions, right? Sins of commission, there's also the sin of, mo- of omission. The gospel deals with our lack of obeying the task that God has given us in his, world, or in his world. So quite literally, when a man or a woman is converted, they are brought back into fellowship with God. It's a reunion of man with Eden and Eden's task. So salvation is, is more about man's task and man's purpose in the world than it is escapism. Many, many Christians today are sadly crippled by the escapist mindset. And you can see it anywhere. You can see it everywhere. What is the person doing at the abortion clinic with a Jesus sticker there, and they're going in? They're escapists. They're trying to escape something. We have a tremendous problem in the world Yes, that's part of it, though, the escapist ideology. And this is also obviously tied to the Sabbath, which we don't have time to get into today. So to sort of give you a summation of things, Adam and Eve were in fellowship. They were in koinonia with God. They were koinonia. They were in fellowship with each other. And they were in fellowship with the world. Sin entered in, fractured all of those things, and now only in Christ are those things restored. So the task of the church... That is, the the people who are brought into this restored fellowship group, right? The task is the task of the redemption of the world. That's the aim that God is after. God is very serious about making sure his name is made famous in the world. He's very concerned that his glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. So we are, listen, we are restored image bearers seeking to restore that which Christ has already in principle restored. I'll say that one more time. We are restored image bearers seeking to restore that which Christ has already in principle restored. So we're sort of, you know, teasing this out a little bit in the world, day by day, diaper by diaper, small business by small business, right? It's just this sort of tracking with the Holy Spirit each day, working and laboring and serving God. So our work... Our work is the application of God's covenant to every area of life and thought. That's our work. 
The job that we have been given is to take God's covenant, to take the tool of dominion He has given us, and to make sure that that gets pushed out into, into all the world, all of the corners of God's world. That's the task. So <clears throat> by no means should we then say that the church should be primarily known in terms of internal repetitious rituals. Do we use signs and symbols like baptism in the Lord's Supper? Absolutely. We love those signs. They're, they're signs, they're pointers, they say something, they're means of grace, they give us something real, something tangible. So absolutely, we use them, they don't use us. Which means that these symbols were made for man, not man for the symbols. Now, in the moment, the, the moment we think that the marks of a church are all these inward institutionalized activities, that's the moment that we make ourselves irrelevant to the larger task at hand. The moment that we think that the purpose of all of this is to make sure that people sit down in pews every Sunday and take the sacraments and sort of that's all that's expected. If we think that's the point of the Christian life, we've lost it. We've lost it. We are no longer a means to the kingdom of God. We think ourselves to be the kingdom. So you have been saved from sin to the dominion covenant. Christians are saved from sin to the dominion covenant. You've been equipped to do something, to do something. Which, which means that the church then is, we're God's armory, right? We, and yes, our citizenship is in heaven, no doubt, but guess where the barracks is located? Right here. It's right here. And, and we're told to take the land. We are quite literally soldiers. Children, listen, you are soldiers in Christ's army. You understand? You are being raised to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to do battle. To, to, to fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as far as I know, most every one of you were with us yesterday in Washington, D.C. doing that. You are a part of that fight. You are a part of the future of God's people. So what we're doing now matters. What you learn now every week when you're sitting here and you're listening to the pastor, the preacher, whoever's talking, do their thing. This is part of the battle plan. So all of us, we've been conscripted into the army of God. That's what we've done. And our job together is to make sure that other people are then equipped and then sent into the battle as well. That's what we're doing. So we equipped, we, we, we gather, we equip, we send. And we do all of that over and over and over again. What we don't do is gather, lament our circumstances, and then we leave the church building thinking that our Christian duty is now over. Thus, we place our hope in escaping the world instead of the one who died to purchase the world. So no, we, like Jesus, go forth conquering and to conquer. Now, the reason that I'm bringing all of this up is sort of an introductory matter to the whole series is because too much of evangelicalism today sees the church purely in terms of its own sort of closeted institutionalism, we might call it. We sort of just relegate the whole entirety of the Christian life to that thing we do on Sunday, to that activity we participate in on a Sunday. Um, you've heard of the Nine Marks ministry. The Nine Marks 
is the, there are, I think they're a, they're a Baptist group, but they have the, the nine marks of what they say is a local healthy church. Preaching is number one. Biblical theology, uh, the gospel, conversion, um, evangelism, membership, like local church membership, discipline, discipleship, and leadership. Those are the nine marks. So if, if you were to ask a person from nine marks, what are the marks of a healthy church? How do you know a church is healthy? Those are the nine things that they would, they would say to you. Now, all of those things we would agree with. <laughs> we agree, absolutely. In, in principle, all of those things are fantastic. We think a lot about preaching, though we may be defining it a little bit differently than our friends at nine marks. Biblical theology, great. Yes and amen. We have to have a, a coherent biblical theology and then apply it. Hallelujah. What about the gospel? Amen. The gospel is central, the, especially when we broaden its true meaning from just the atonement to the bigger picture of the kingdom of God. What about conversion? Absolutely. Sure thing. Got to have that. Got to have people converted by God's spirit through the preaching of the word. Evangelism. We do that. We do a lot of that. Fantastic. Um, membership. Sure. Yeah. We are members of Christ and we are members of each other. And we are members of people in Zambia. We are members of one another. What about discipline? Well, yes, we need to all be taught how to obey God. And anyone in the church of Jesus Christ is called to practice gospel reconciliation. Absolutely. We would say church courts are important. We should, we should have those, those types of things. So that's discipline. What about discipleship? Yes, discipleship. We are called to teach the nations to obey Christ and everything He has commanded. Hallelujah, amen. Discipleship isn't you taking a five-week course, checking it off, and you've, suddenly you've got it all figured out. Discipleship is, is as messy and as long as sanctification is. What about leadership? Sure, Jesus taught us how to lead, right? How do we lead people? We serve them. We serve them. Now, my concern generally, though, with, with this approach, and this is an approach taken by pretty much the entire Baptist world, uh, and even in much in reform camp, most of evangelicalism, I think that these marks somewhat miss the mark. They somewhat miss the mark. What do I mean? When, when these things are usually talked about or written about, and I've read a ton of this stuff over the years, it frames the discussion inside the local church and only the local church. And that's it. There's no real discussion about how local churches in one particular region work with others or when we work with other people across state lines or what about people um, overseas in Africa. H how does that work? Um, preaching on the streets usually is not addressed. Preaching in an abortion mill, not usually discussed. Talking about the gospel in terms of the way the New Testament uses it, like the connection to the kingdom of God, that's rarely emphasized. Any, any, any semblance of how to fashion a social order based on the doctrines we find in Scripture, not a peep. So we're missing some things, I think. We're missing things. And in short, here's what it is. When we truncate the kingdom down to only a few things that should happen and activities that should happen inside the four walls of a church, we end up failing immensely at discussing things like business and economics and politics and Christian education. 
those things are sort of just left out. And why is that? Well, here's why. Because none of those things are spiritual things. They're not spiritual. Those spiritual things we shouldn't talk about. Obviously, that's usually how it's discussed. And there is mass confusion, I would say, over the doctrine of the church. And I'll give you an example. Um, And as much as I've learned from Pastor Mark Dever at Capitol Hill Baptist, just 45 miles from here, he, and I love the man. He's taught some awesome stuff. He talked about in an interview once about the mission of the church. And here's what he said. He said, quote, The mission of the church is to make disciples and build churches. All right, yeah, we're told to make disciples. And when you make disciples, you just, I mean, that's part of the church. But he goes on. He says, Christianity goes forward by pastors raising up other pastors and sending them out, end quote. That's the mission of the church. Pastors raising up other pastors and sending them out. Now, I believe, yes, in pastors. I art one. (laughs) And I believe in the function of elders, absolutely, in a particular fellowship. No one's rejecting that. But I don't think that the mission of the church in the primary sense is, is to grow pastors. I think that's important, and we should be, Right? One of the things, Jordan and I have said this a lot, you know, anybody that wants to go to seminary, here's our advice, don't. Come here. <laughs> Come here. We'll start a business, we'll get you, you know, in the thick of things, and there you go. So absolutely, the, do, we need good pastors, absolutely, but that's not the central mission. That's a tool. It's, it's important. But the church cannot be boiled down to ecclesiastical rituals and customs and formalities. That's a truncated doctrine of the church. So if you're a homemaker, if you're a truck driver, a factory worker, or a salesman, guess what? You've been excluded from the task. You can't do anything about the kingdom. Sorry, ladies, you that are at home laboring in your six-figure income. It's just not important. You've been excluded. Suddenly your job becomes to just make money, support the ecclesiastical functions of the church because that's all there is in this view. That's all there is. We have a problem. And that's why there's so much confusion in the doctrine of the church is because, frankly, we don't know what we're supposed to be doing. We don't know. We think that if we attend church, that's, that's good. That's it. And so we perpetuate a truncated gospel and we slap on top of it a truncated purpose with it as well. And we remain impotent and we remain spiritual infants. And the cycle continues. So we're going to get to Acts 2 in a second. But Again, all this is sort of introductory for the series. We need to know the gospel of the kingdom and we need to know that the rightful place of the church is in service to the kingdom of God. That's the rightful place of the church, in service of the kingdom of God. Jesus did not say, seek ye first local church membership classes, and then all these things will be added unto you. So, And we laugh, but people think this. They do. The ecclesia of God is called to be a force in the world for righteousness and justice. That's the calling. The ecclesia of God we are the called out, gathered and scattered ones. We gather, we worship, we partake, we, we fellowship. We'll get to that in a minute. 
And then we go. And we go into our business and we go into the world and we do what we do for the sake of the kingdom. And so we are not building our own navel-gazing institutions. We are equipping people for war because that's what we're in. So that's right on the front of your bulletin. You see it at the, uh, at the, on the very front of it. We exist. Why do we exist? What's the point of cross and crown church? We exist to partake of the sacraments and that's it. <laughs> no, we exist to equip men and women and children to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every single area of life. So all of Christ for all of life. Now, Again, all that's the larger introduction to what's to come in this series I'm calling One Another. And I want to make sure we're clear on this stuff as it pertains to the doctrine of the church because everything else that we talk about is going to flow from that type of thinking. It's going to be flowing from this. So let's look at our text again. I want to read it. And then we're going to just examine a few things and go from there. Acts 2.42 They were continually... This is describing the early church. They were continually devoting, we're going to talk about that word, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. I love that, that verse. All those who had believed, what? Were together. There's something unique there. They had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all and as anyone might have need. Day by day, notice not Sunday by Sunday, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. And having favor with all people, all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, <clears throat> at this point, Jesus, as the story goes, Jesus has died, Jesus is raised, Jesus has ascended to the throne to take his rightful place as both Lord and Christ. The Spirit came down on the Christian church, and Peter begins to preach. Peter changes, he shifts gears from, from, from uh, really struggling to, to follow Jesus and to the point of betrayal. Uh, in denying him, Peter is now equipped, and he's equipped, and he preaches. And he preaches amazing sermons in the first part, part of Acts. So there, his preaching is powerful. Um, many people, by God's grace and by God's Spirit, were converted. They were made into disciples of the Lord Jesus. Now, by the end of chapter 2, though, here in our text, we learn that there are some particular characteristics about this church, the, the nature and characteristics of the ecclesia of God. What, what is it that marked this community? What marked them? What were the marks? Well, the text tells us they were continually, verse 42, devoting themselves. They were devoting themselves. This word um, devoted, it carries this idea of being steadfastly committed to something. Um, resolved in one's pursuit to chase after this thing. There's, there's the idea of intensity, uh, there's an intensity and persistence. There's this strong insistence and vehemence that rules and governs your mind and your will. You are resolved in the inner man. The, the, the volition of your entire self is committed. Now, devotion in our terms, in our world, tends to be quiet time with God. To be devoted to God, we, we think, 
why I have my um, Jesus calling. Don't read that. But I have, I have my devotional, and, and I just, I'm quiet with God. Devotion, though, in biblical categories and terms, has to do with the entirety of your being, the entirety of your volition, being utterly consumed and resolved to pursue something, to pursue it with the entirety of your thinking, your hands, your heart, all of it involved. And though it sometimes is difficult, we tarry. They were devoted. There was that much fervor behind their commitment. And what did they insist on? Because you can be really zealous the wrong way. What did they insist on? What had gripped them to the core of their being so much so that, that what is it that, that they considered everything else entirely unworthy of their time and attention at the moment? Well, Luke tells us they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They had a love for the Word of God. They wanted to know truth. They pursued it incessantly. They insisted on true and sound doctrine. Notice it was the apostles' teaching. They had a love for God's Word. And not only that, they were devoted to something else. After God's Word, what were they devoted to? Fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship. That's our word, koinonia. They were eating together and praying together. They were committed to this fledgling group of people who were about to experience persecution like nothing they had ever imagined. Verse 43, And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Amen. And all those, verse 44, who had believed were together. They had all things in common. Now they had unloaded on their property and their assets because not only did they want to serve one another, just so we're clear, this is not some sort of socialistic welfare program in the early church. But yes, they were committed to one another, but they also wanted to be ready for Christ's divine judgment that would befall Jerusalem just as Jesus had, had promised. Verse 45, and they began selling their property and possessions, right? They were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. If you're going to be in Koinonia, you have to know how to find people's needs. You have to be able to point them out, be committed to them, and finding those things out and figuring out a way to meet those needs. So they praised God. They had favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Their koinonia led to the growth of the church. All these church growth gurus who tell you if you just get the right lighting and sound equipment and a banging fog machine, you're good. Your church will grow. None of them are teaching koinonia. They're not. Quite literally, their fellowship together was the impetus for expanding the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So their devotion to Christ and each other was an evangelistic tool. It was. It was an evangelistic tool. And I can't help but think of Deuteronomy 4 when I read a passage like this. Listen to Deuteronomy 4, verse 5 and 8, 5 through 8. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so, so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call upon Him? 
Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Listen, when God's people take seriously the law of God, they take seriously their fellowship with each other. It's wisdom in the sight of nations. When God's people do both of those things, the world can't help but take notice. They can't help but take notice. And the reason for this is because the church is a nation. You ever thought of it in those terms? Peter tells us that that's what the church is. We are a nation. And we are a nation whose task is to get all the other nations to pay attention to what we're doing. And when they pay attention to what we are doing, we have influence with them. We get trust with them, don't we? We lead them. We teach them. We instruct them. What are we doing? We disciple them. So far too much ecclesiology is obsessed with institutional hierarchies and other ecclesiology, what we'll call it. Hardly anyone talks about the church the way the Bible does. It talks about the church. That is this. The church is supposed to be the people of God committed to the law word of God to such a degree that they are creating a social order, a culture that reflects God's righteousness. And when all of that happens, the world is influenced and eventually discipled. Not many doctrinal books on the church speak in those terms. The church is supposed to be the people of God committed to the law word of God to such a degree that they are creating a social order that reflects God's righteousness. And when, we all, when all that happens, the world is influenced and eventually discipled. You see, our aim, our aim is to be so devoted to the apostles' teaching, so devoted to fellowship with each other, to, to the breaking of bread together, and devotion to prayer, that this sense of awe comes over us and others, and people see the nature of the church, and people are compelled to come. They're compelled. They can't explain it. They are compelled to insist on the very same thing. This is, this is what I would call law-saturated gospel evangelism. Now, fellowship is this communion that the church experiences together. This wonderful experience that you almost, it's palpable when you're in fellowship with people. Some of you, some of you discussed business this weekend and you had fellowship. Some of you were at an abortion clinic fellowshipping at the gates of hell. The temple of Planned Parenthood, we might say. See, fellowship is this common faith we have, this common experience that we share, these common expressions of our love for King Jesus. They're tangible things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, he says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You were called into fellowship. Our koinonia together as the ecclesia is rooted in the fact that first and foremost, we were brought into fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's what I was talking about earlier with Adam and Eve returning to fellowship with God in Eden. Jesus, he, Jesus went under the sword that the cherubim had stuck on the east, right? Part of the garden. So Jesus brings us east to west. He, just like the Israels went from east to west, the promised land, um, we too, He takes us there. That's the fellowship with God through Christ. And as we read earlier, we have fellowship now with each other. 
When we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, what do we have with each other? Fellowship. We have koinonia. So if we're walking in darkness, what do we lose? Fellowship. We lose it. You see, um, koinonia is the covenantal bond that we share as God's people. It's a covenantal bond that we share as God's people. It's a bond that transcends color, skin color, economic status. We experienced that in Zambia recently, that koinonia with the people of God. There's something there, this connection that we both share in Christ. It it transcends cultural expressions. All that's very fresh from (laughs) trip mission to Africa two weeks ago. This, This covenantal bond exists because I have been brought to Christ, and guess what? You have been brought to Christ. That's the bond. And the person next to you is in fellowship with you because you are both in fellowship with Christ. So so we have communion, not because the blood that runs through our veins, rather the blood that ran through Jesus' veins. That's what brings us together. Yesterday, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I mentioned earlier, as we get close to the end here, that we have to root our doctrine of the church in who we are married to, who we are to serve, and what we're to do about that. Our fellowship together must not be filtered down to mere institutionalism. It must not be truncated and meant to be put in, some, in the same plane as your membership at a church. No, our fellowship must be rooted in Jesus Christ who gave himself up for you. Children, listen. Jesus Christ gave himself up for you. He gave himself for you. So, so koinonia can't be just because we're on the same church softball team. Because <laughs> I've played in those, and there's some wickedness that happens in the, <laughs> those leagues. If, if koinonia is found, founded on institutionalism, we lose plain and simple. See, cross and crown, we're very unique. We're strange. We're very strange. See, people usually, they'll shop around for a church, and, and so music this, coffee that. And you know what I'm talking about. The comfortable chairs, those, that got me. You know, th- that sort of thing. But, but if, as we have emphasized less institutional things and more purpose things, more mission things, we have this worldview, this particular worldview that's built on Scripture, and what we want to do is do something about it. We want to do something about it. Listen, that's not normal. <laughs> it's not normal. What we're doing is not normal at all. It's not normal to have most of your church show up to a Planned Parenthood to try and save babies and wreak havoc on the death courts. It's not normal. It's not normal to insist on a Christian education for your children. I've been in those circumstances, and you dare touch the topic of government schools... You have wrath to to endure. It's it's not normal to be just as committed to prayer as you are business. It's not normal. This stuff doesn't usually happen. And the reason is because I think our fellowship, this devotion to fellowship, it's not... It's not resting on Christ and His Word. It's resting on fakery. 
It's resting on sand. It's resting on things that are just wind. It's just vapor, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes says. If we're, you know, if we're just nice to each other, everything will be fine. See, Cross and Crown Church, we're trying to build a culture here. Jesus Christ has purchased us with his blood. Amen? We have embraced the gospel of the kingdom, and we know that this kingdom has accompanying social order that comes with the territory. And what we want to do is build something amazing, build a culture, one that cares about justice in the public square. And when we are all committed to Jesus Christ, who is our Lord, when we are devoted and consumed and emboldened by the truth of his word, when we are vehemently opposed to a truncated version of the gospel, when we are forceful about our convictions because we know that cowards are thrown into the lake of fire, when we insist on seeing to it that every single area of life is built on God's Word. When we do this, we will build something amazing. When we truly one another, one another. And the awesome thing, we didn't even do the building. <laughs> Jesus did it for us. He said, I will build my ecclesia. I will build it, he said. And we're, when, we're, when we're committed, when we share this common mission together, and we are of one mind for the purposes of the kingdom, God can and God will do great things among us. And so let us ask him to do just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled that you chose us. You chose us, Father. We did not choose you. You bestowed your love on us first. Before the foundations of the world, you have, you'd picked us out. You'd placed the love of your Son, Jesus, in our hearts by the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit. And for that, we are eternally grateful. And we ask, Father, that you would build in this community a force to be reckoned with, that our faithfulness would be made manifest in all areas of life, in our families. God, give us grace in our families. In our business pursuits, God, give us grace. In our children, oh Lord, be faithful to our children. We are absolutely in need of your help, your wisdom, your guidance, your discernment. Father, as we seek to serve one another the way Christ served the church, would you help us? And we ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, who is our King and our Lord. Amen.